0: Hello, welcome to the podcast of Ideas. I'm Rob Lyons. Early this month, scientists from the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory, LIGO, declared that they had observed gravitational waves for the first time. In the process, they confirmed an important conclusion from Einstein's work. But I'm sure I'm not alone in wondering what exactly all this means. What are gravitational waves? How were they detected? And what does it all mean? So to discuss this... Without the aid of graphics or uh, equations, I'm joined by Gareth Sturdy, a physics teacher at East London Science School, who also also runs
1: the Physics Factory. Perhaps you could just explain briefly what the Physics Factory is. Sure. The Physics Factory is a project to put the phys back into physics teaching in London. So I'll go into a school and whatever they need to make physics exciting, could be resources, could be training the teachers, could be lecturers coming in, could be uh, interesting workshops for the children we'll lay it on and we'll make it happen. Right, okay. So you deal a lot
0: with schools. Now you have to try and explain gravitational waves. us. So first of all, maybe you could explain what
1: the team at LIGO actually did. Yeah, that that's would be a good place to start. Okay, so LIGO is one of a few similar kind of observatories around the world. They were the one that happened to pick up uh, this particular result. and We can talk about why that was important. So LIGO is two beams of light... At ninety degrees to each other in two different locations, so you 've got one in uh, somewhere in Washington state, and you 've got another one down in Louisiana, I think it is uh, so quite a distance apart in the in the states, and they basically travel over about four kilometers, going back and forth, okay, and they do that now if if everything 's fine with space time then They just do that and and you don't see any change. So the the light doesn't sort of interfere with itself. But if there's a ripple in space-time, again, we can explain all this in a minute, but if there's a ripple in space-time, then what happens to the light on the way back is slightly different to what happened to it on the way out and the light beam interferes with itself. So that's what an interferometer is. It's an interferometer. It measures the amount of interference in this beam as it's travelled on its journey. And the only way that that can happen is if uh, there has been a ripple in space-time. And so the two different parts of this project, if they pick up the same result, and then further, if that's kind of verified by the other similar experiments on other parts of the globe, then it suggests that this is an, an actual result that we're looking at.
0: And what is the event that they looked at that caused this ripple?
1: Well, so this is goes to the heart of why this is interesting because some huge disturbance billions of light years away happened in space-time a bit like a sort of rock dropping into a lake and these big ripples sort of spreading out and eventually have reached us and we've we've picked them up to the you know this year the question is what might have caused that now we're not completely blind you know by looking at other sorts of data and the other kind of ways that we can look into the universe. The theory is that there's two black holes out there, one slightly bigger than the other, both dozens of times more massive than the sun. They've collided and created this kind of super black hole, and the ripples from that are what we've seen. So, in a way, LIGO, the interferometer, kind of verifies the idea that these black holes are actually out there. So far they've been postulated... But certainly what you can say is some massive, supermassive event has happened that's caused this, and our best theory is it's two colliding black holes.
0: Right, so there was a lot of discussion about the sensitivity of the equipment and how sort of remarkable that was. Could you yeah. explain, because explain? They, they were talking about detecting things you know with
1: thousands of something over you know millions of light years. The, the way it's been most sort of popularly couched is that you're looking at a a sort of size change equivalent to a human hair's width measured over the distance between here and our nearest star which is in Alpha Centauri. So Mm -hmm. that's the kind of shift in distance that you're trying to measure over uh, such a large kind of distance away that something is. So, So my analogy of a rock dropping into a pond and you're seeing the ripples is actually... You know, far in excess of the kind of thing we're talking about. We're actually talking about an event happening over this huge distance and, and making a shift in something of the order of a, of a human hair's width.
0: Sort of more like a, a- piece of gravel being dropped on one side of the pacific ocean and being detected on the other yeah, ab- ab- yeah. ab-
1: absolutely right i mean you know needle in haystack sort of is is bigger than than the kind of thing we're talking about
0: okay so what is this thing that they've discovered i mean what is a gravitational wave
1: well that now now see now that i have to do the science bit so you know tighten your seat belts everybody i'm gonna explain to you really first of all what space time is i think loads of people use that term but uh, I'm not sure people really understand what they mean. So the space-time continuum, what is that? So on the desk in front of us, there's this microphone. If I took a film of that microphone, okay, and uh, so the microphone isn't moving or anything, it's there, but it's got sort of height, width, depth. But also if I film it, then that film will have a, a time code on it. So I could also say that that microphone is going forward through time, you know, it's got sort of three fixed spatial dimensions. They could change, but they're not. But there's also this fourth dimension of time, right? We're happy with that. Oh, yes. So if I now get you to visualise like scaffolding, like a sort of scaffolding kind of grid in three dimensions, where each, all of the bars are a fixed distance apart, so it's nice and regular, and at every point that they cross these bars, we've got a clock, Yeah. So we can define every point in space with the sort of usual coordinates up, down, across, you know, forwards, backwards, but also a time reading on that clock at that point on the grid, yeah? So that's really what we mean by the space-time continuum, okay? This three-dimensional grid with an extra dimension, a fourth dimension of time as well, where every point has a sort of time code reference on it. Now I want to stretch it a little bit more because it's going to be difficult to think about this if we continually hold this scaffolding in our, uh, in our heads. So why don't we just think of a sort of flat sheet that's got a grid printed on it? Why do I want to sort of reduce it to two dimensions? Because when you have something really heavy, uh, imagine a, a really heavy rock or something, and I put it in the middle of this sheet that's got our grid on it, this, the space-time continuum, that heavy rock will sort of pull down that sheet and it'll, it'll stretch, so it'll form like a bowl shape, yeah? Mm-hmm. So essentially, that's what mass does to the space-time continuum. It makes it warped, a different shape. Now, depending on the kind of mass you've got, that warping might be really regular. It might be quite irregular. If you've got an odd shape, you might get you know, loads of warping in one place and very little warping in another. But it bends space-time, It bends that grid where we've got coordinates and clocks at each point. Now, if you take my analogy of the rock in the sheet and we sort of bounce that rock up and down, then we'll send ripples out through that space-time continuum. And if we have equipment sensitive enough, we should be able to detect those ripples. So really the, the theory of general relativity, Einstein's theory, which has been around for exactly 100 years, has you know made this clear and said that this this should be able to happen what really what's happened is we've got a machine that's now sensitive enough to actually detect it and that's the really exciting thing for me
0: okay so that's but i kind of get that but so so when we are distorting space-time when i put my huge rock into my am Am I changing not just the coordinates of things in three dimensions, but am I changing the time that they're at as well?
1: Yeah, you are. Or rather, things moving through that grid of space and time will then start to feel space and time slightly differently, okay? So everything in the universe is trying to move in a straight line, okay? The, the reason things actually move in curves, like, for example, the reason that the Earth is going around the sun in an ellipse is because the sun has warped space-time. So if I have my sheet with a rock in the middle, that's the space-time continuum with a large mass in it. Now I take a marble, which is some planet or some smaller object that's trying to move across or move through space-time. I roll that marble across the sheet. Now, if the sheet were just flat, the, the marble would move in a straight line, okay? But because it's now encountering this warped sort of well in in the sheet, it's going to spiral inwards. You know when you, um, you put a coin in one of those collecting boxes that they often have in, you know, zoos and things, and you, you, you put the coin in, it spirals round this great big funnel and spins and spins and spins and spins, gets faster and faster and finally drops, and kids love it. It's exactly what we're dealing with. Something is trying to move in a straight line, but it's the curvature of space-time. It's the way space is bent and, and warped that causes it to move in circles. That's what gravity is. It's not actually the marble being attracted to the rock in the middle of the sheet. The marble's just trying to move in a straight line, but the sheet's warped, so the marble moves in a curve and it looks as though it's being pulled towards the rock. That's what gravity is. So gravity is just the curvature of space-time. That's what it is.
0: But if there's no matter in space, because we were talking about vast, apparently empty distances, what what is it that is curved then?
1: So the black holes that collided and caused this event that LIGO picked up are so massive that they have curved space-time in that locality, and for millions of light years beyond that place the reason we can pick it up is that they've literally flicked the sheet the space-time continuum has rippled and those ripples will now spread out through uh, what you're calling empty space the important thing to realize is that this is space that we're talking about it's not something in space it's not like a a star that's burning giving out light in space this is actually the fabric of space itself so it's rippling it's rippling like you're shaking a bed sheet that's what space is doing and and Technically speaking, the space between you and I now may be wobbling and feeling the effects of events happening far off in the universe that have rolled out here. The, the, the question is merely, could we possibly ever detect that rippling and between you and I here, no. Um, but get the right equipment and you can. So what are
0: the consequences of this in terms of physics? I mean, we are just confirming what we already knew
1: does this open up new kinds of questions to us? It does a lot of confirming. I mean, there's there's always new questions asked. So one of the questions, for example, is, OK, if we found waves through space-time, do they travel at the speed of light? Um, this is an, another thing that, you know, people sort of tend to know that, Lots of things travel at the speed of light, and you can't go faster than the speed of light. People might know these things. Do gravitational waves travel at the speed of light? So the next task is to look at the results from LIGO, look at other similar results that will come in from other things as time goes on, and do the sums and see if they're travelling at the speed of light. Further than that, you can begin to work out, if you get enough results, you, you begin to work out if space itself is getting bigger at the speed of light. So we have this idea of the Big Bang and the sort of uh, the, the universe kind of inflating. It's not really exploding. The universe is inflating like a balloon, like the space between all objects is getting stretched out. Now, we've always thought that that's happening quicker than the speed of light. This will confirm whether that's the case.
0: Why would that be happening faster than the speed of light?
1: that is a really, a really, really heavy question. let's not go there. Uh, Perhaps, perhaps we're not going, it doesn't have to go at the speed of light. So, you know, things can go faster than the speed of light. The expansion of the universe is one of those things, perhaps the biggest example of that. Yeah. Okay. There's loads of other things. It will, it will, uh, might add some evidence t- to or against string theory, another thing that people have heard about, perhaps not quite know what that is, but you know does is string theory a viable theory this this may well give us the evidence, and also a little bit more. I can't believe I'm saying prosaic things but neutron stars for example these are really dense heavy objects out in space are they perfectly flat and smooth or do they have sort of odd things coming out from the surface like our sun for example things called promontories and things like that this will confirm if they're nice smooth objects that send out smooth ripples or are they complicated objects more than that and we can get into this if you want, it it really brings Einstein back into vogue, he's been looked down upon I think it's fair to say a little bit by all the interest in the standard model the thing that they're doing uh, with the Large Hadron Collider particles and all of this this puts the focus directly back on what I was talking about just now about the shape of space time and maybe things in the universe are caused by the shape and the bending and the curving of space time rather than little particles colliding with each other like snooker balls like you know newton always envisages envisage everything happening yeah yes i was i was going to
0: go on to that so yeah we have i mean uh, yeah most people who sort of vaguely follow this thing will will probably know that there is a conflict between quantum theory Mm. which is the bedrock of all the things that have been going on with the large hadron collider with the higgs boson all that Mm. sort of stuff Mm -hmm. and then einstein's theory and they both work yeah But they contradict each other. So where are we at in terms of working out how these two things can be
1: brought together? Or is that still just... No, this is really, really exciting because, yeah, you're right. So general relativity, Einstein's theory, explains things on a very, very large scale. Big masses, huge distances, space-time continuum, all that stuff. So you can explain very large things and you can look at the big bang and how the universe might have formed and so on and then when you want to get into what we're made of and what you know what actually everything's constituted of then you have to resort to theories of the very very small and the tiny and that's quantum mechanics and that's what that's dealing with now at the big bang both of those things meet because it's the ultimate it's the the fabric of the universe but it's also at a point, so it's tiny, from which everything comes. So the Big Bang is kind of where the interest has been thus far, because we can use the Large Hadron Collider to simulate some of the early conditions immediately after the Big Bang. So the particle boys, CERN and Fermilab and all these other places, are kind of getting a lot of the interest because they're trying to bring everything together in one grand unified theory. But the great thing about general relativity is that it's a sort of fly in the ointment. It takes a completely different view and it says we should think about things as sculpting space-time, not necessarily as the continual interaction of particles with particles. And with all the research that's been done at the Large Hadron Collider and so on, you could begin to forget that idea. You could say ultimately this will all come down to how particles are interacting. And now suddenly, bang! Bang! We've got this way of viewing the universe that's, again, about the geometry of the universe. Is not about the collision of particles. I'm being very reductionist here. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's a lot of, to, to a layman looking at it, there's a lot of ways in which particle mechanics applies to what we're talking about in terms of the actual detection and how things interfere and so on. But very broad scale... It's incredibly exciting. I've always had a bit of a soft spot for Einstein. I have never really liked the way everything is ultimately a matter of particles just interacting. You, you everyone, is just a sort of swarm of these crazy particles just going about their own business. It, it's a very reductionist view of, of things. So I think geometry, the shape of things, is, uh, if nothing else, a much more poetic way of looking at things. And I don't think that's any bad thing. And on that note, on that you know, lyrical note, I think we'll call it a day there. But I'm,
0: I, I, I'm sure these kinds of issues will pop up from time to time when they discover another boson or another, you know, confirm some more gravitational results or whatever. So uh, thank you very much for uh, your time, Gareth Sturdy. It's a pleasure. Thank you. If you'd like to uh, find out more about our podcasts or subscribe to them, please visit instituteofideas.com forward slash podcast.